1: Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program.
0: Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, April 22nd, 2022, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today I am breaking down the President's fiscal year 2023 budget proposal and what it means for the congressional appropriations process. Let me start by introducing each of my guests. First, joining us from the Bipartisan Policy Center is Senior Vice President William Hoagland. Welcome, Bill. Next, joining us from First Branch Forecast, a demand progress project, is head of the Demand Progress Education Fund, Daniel Schumann. Welcome, Dan. Finally, we have a representative from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Joining me from CRFB is Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director. Welcome, Mark. Now, as we get started, I want to just give all of our guests an opportunity to introduce their organizations and tell us a little bit more about the work they do. Let's start with Bill from the Bipartisan Policy Center.
2: Uh, Thank you, Natalia. The Bipartisan Policy Center is a a 501c3 organization. It was established about 15 years ago by four former majority leaders of the United States Senate, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats the late Senator Bob Dole and Senator Howard Baker on the Republican side, Senator George Mitchell and Senator Tom Daschle on the Democratic side. And as the name would imply, our effort here is to try to bring together uh, the the two different parties and their viewpoints and policies and try to find common ground that can move bipartisan legislation through Congress. Uh, Our areas of focus uh, are in the fiscal area, uh, but health, immigration, Uh, governance, a number of areas that we deal with going forward. Uh, It's challenging, of course. Bipartisanship is a very challenging issue these days in this town. Uh, But uh, I believe and have always believed that uh, sustainable policy long-term requires bipartisanship.
0: That's great. I, I completely agree. You know, our government was meant to force compromise. And so this is a very important mission, and we appreciate that you guys are working on it. Uh, it's something that we at Talk are firm believers in. Over at Demand Progress, Dan, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and the First Branch Forecast?
3: Sure. So
4: uh, Demand Progress is a progressive grassroots organization. We are both a C3 and a C4, so we do both education and advocacy. And our focus is largely around building a more capable, more effective government. Uh, A lot of the work is around transparency and accountability, helping people to understand how things work, uh, to be able to uh, make sure that, uh, in particular congressional staff, but but federal employees at large, have the tools and the resources that they need to best be able to do their jobs for the American people and uh, to provide a platform. Uh, So that we can have conversations Mm -hmm. about what our priorities are and find ways to, um, through our democratic system, to work out and uh, find areas of agreement.
0: Absolutely. And Dan has joined us on the show before for a show we held on making Congress modern. And one of the things that you just touched on that that show really focused on is the intersection between making sure Congress has the tools to do its job and then Congress enacting legislation that makes sure the federal workforce and the federal agencies have the tools that they need to do their job. Those things are very much interrelated. And, you know, Dan, it's great to hear you come back on the show and to talk more about these issues. Next, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about your work?
3: Sure. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget is a nonpartisan organization focused on fiscal issues. Our our board is extremely bipartisan, including uh, Bill Bill being a member. They disagree on all sorts of things like size of government and amount of taxes, but they they agree that during normal times, we shouldn't have excessive borrowing. Uh, Our core organizational mission is an educational one. We have an advocacy and a watchdog role, but at its core, um, we are there to educate the public, the press, uh, and policymakers on issues of fiscal importance, which covers everything from tax policy to health care, retirement, defense, you name it, there's usually a budgetary component.
0: Absolutely. Uh, One thing we always say at the firm is regardless of how big or how small you want the government to be, it needs to be accountable and it needs to be transparent, needs to work well with the American people. And I think that's something that at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, there's definitely those overtones of regardless of, you know, what you think of the size and the scope of government, it, it needs to be fiscally responsible. And those are certainly very important values. I really appreciate having each of you on today representing your respective organizations and framing this topic about the president's budget. Before we get into the specifics about what the big takeaways are, you know, what things we want to see Congress really move forward with in the appropriations process, I'd want to take a couple minutes to give our readers a better understanding of the significance behind the president's budget. So just on that general kind of question of how significant really is the president's budget, I'd like to hear you all kind of go around and provide your perspective. Bill, we could start with you.
2: Well, first of all i think it's first in the constitution and more importantly in the congressional budget and control act of 1974 it's a requirement that the president submit to congress a budget uh by the first monday in february uh presidents don't always meet that deadline and did not meet it of course uh uh, last year with the new president that would President Biden was elected, It was uh, new presidents do have the luxury of uh, delaying their submission. He did submit to his 23 budget uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, it's important. Um, now, there is, um, uh, there is an old uh, saying on Capitol Hill for staff that where I worked for many years that uh, uh, the appendix is it makes a good uh, door stopper. Um, it is thick. It is uh, very difficult. There's a lot of material in there. But it's essential. And some people say, well, it's a waste of time for the president to submit a budget. I don't think so. Uh, a president, uh, just like a family, like a business, like a company, uh, a farm, uh, you have to have a budget. And uh, it's, it, the federal government needs a budget. So the president's blueprint, and I consider it to be a blueprint, is a, uh, maybe somewhat aspirational, but lays out a, a guideline for where he would like to see policy go in the future in particular areas of focus and uh, that it becomes a tool upon which then Congress is supposed to act on its own to produce its congressional budget that reflects maybe the president's budget, maybe doesn't reflect the president's budget, but it is an essential piece of planning going forward for the upcoming fiscal year and into the future.
0: Thanks so much, Bill, that was really helpful. I'm curious about some of the reactions from Mark and Dan
3: uh, well, look, I, I think the president's budget historically has been an extremely useful document that has launched the budget process. But in recent years, it's become less useful. Um, I still think there are two ways the budget, president's budget is really important. The one is through the appropriations process. People pay attention to the big picture numbers, but um, it's actually some of the small details, the tiny details of which dollars will go to which account um, that matter for the appropriators to start doing their jobs. And that's a vital part of budget. The other is President's budget is a laundry list of policies, most of which will be abandoned, but a few of which may be accepted or used as offsets, and then it becomes a menu. Unfortunately, the President's budget in recent years hasn't been very good as an actual guide for budgeting. Um, We haven't really used it as a starting point for determining how we're going to spend. In fact, we haven't used much of anything as a starting point for determining how we're going to spend. The biggest determinant of how much we're going to spend this year and where is how much we spent last year and where.
4: So I, I think that there's a lot of uh, truth to both of uh, uh, what was just said here. I, I think there's a couple things, at least that always catch my eye. One is that the president's budget is a political document, and its utility varies greatly based upon who's in control in the House and the Senate, uh, whether there are folks with veto power or not they're those chambers, and um, the incentives around the upcoming election. Uh, for example, can have significant effects on whether Congress is going to act in time to move appropriate legislation or not, or whether it's going to sort of rubber, you know, duplicate what happened uh, in the prior fiscal year. I view the president's budget as an interesting document. I find the congressional budget justifications, which are uh, when the agencies say what they would like to receive from Congress, to be often a useful way to get a view inside what the agencies are doing. Um, But it's really, for me, in many respects, the appropriations process that reveals more about um, what is likely to happen, where the different priorities lie, um, and how Congress is going to put its own stamp on what the federal government is going to spend.
0: Thank you so much, um, Bill, Dan, and Mark, for those initial reactions. We do have to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back to continue the conversation. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Mark Goldwine, Dan Schumann, and Bill Hoagland discussing the president's budget proposal. We just got some initial reactions regarding what is kind of the relevance and significance of the president's budget. And I want to continue that conversation in asking, you know, what does the president's budget really say about our nation's fiscal outlook? And one of the kind of sub-questions I have there is, how does the delay in the president's budget and it coming out later than initially anticipated impact that outlook? And, Mark, I think this is something you've discussed before. So I'm curious if you have any initial reactions to that question.
3: I'm um, Sure. Well, look, the president's budget is, is yeah. not concerning. Uh, the president takes some important steps in the budget to propose um, about a trillion dollars debt reduction over a decade. They also brag about the fact that the deficits themselves are, are coming down from $3 trillion down, ultimately to $1 And yet, debt under the president's budget, with this deficit reduction, with pretty strong growth assistance, is still going to be the highest in our history by the end of the decade, higher than after World War II. Um, deficit is never going to fall below $1 trillion. Under their budget, it's going to rise to nearly $2 trillion by the end of the decade. Um, without their deficit reduction, it would rise above $2 trillion. So, overall, Not good
2: news for our overall fiscal outlook.
0: Any additional reactions on that?
2: I agree with Mark. I think that uh, the outlook for our fiscal sustainability into the future and for those of us who still believe that debt and deficits matter, uh, this is not a a sustainable path that the president has put forth. Uh, More importantly, the president's budget is always based upon a set of economic assumptions, somewhat uh, aspirational, shall we say, in terms of where uh, the economy may be going. And I would note that as of today, uh, I think the T-bill rate is uh, approximately about almost uh, uh, 1.9 percent, uh, a very important little uh, variable. Uh, The president's budget assumed to be 1.2. The point being that the, the economic assumptions underlying this budget are probably uh, rather uh, optimistic, and therefore Mark's uh, outline is probably also uh, optimistic in, in terms of where the president says the deficit's gonna be, but whatever it is, it's gonna be, it's gonna continue to increase. So my main point would be that uh, a budget, if it's to be uh, to to deal with long-term sustainability, uh, except for putting forth what is in the, what. Uh, as, as you've indicated, Natalie, the, the important point here is that, that the budget really sets the framework for discretionary program for the appropriation process, not the budget process, but the appropriation process. And that's probably the most important piece of this. And I, quite frankly, even today, uh, our defense people have already said that the president's request is well under um, what? It's going to be needed given the situation in Ukraine. So this is a uh, a beginning of a long process. I still believe that we'll have appropriations done, either through a continuing resolution. For your listeners, at the end of this year, but uh, this is uh, not a budget that's going to have a major impact upon improving our fiscal sustainability.
4: I'm sorry, I hate to be the the skunk at the garden party, and and I respect uh, Bill and Mark greatly, and they've probably forgotten more about. Uh, the federal budget appropriation process, and appropriations process than I will ever know, um, but uh, the focus on debt and deficit um, is not something um, that we think makes the most sense. I think that makes more sense to focus on priorities and investments. Uh, there is a long history of uh, economists coming before Congress um, and making assumptions about appropriate rates for saving money or the consequences of the debt and the deficit. And those, have, and those predictions have not uh, entirely been borne out. So I, I think that there is probably more sense in looking at, for example, the political questions here, because I think that those are going to be more determinative than um, you know various perspectives as on debt or deficit, which is something that neither party seems to care all that much about at this particular moment, and look more at the political questions that are going to arise between For example ideas of parity between defense and non-defense spending uh the increased growth of defense uh something that you know we we saw a significant increase uh in the last fiscal year we're probably going to see another significant increase uh in this fiscal year uh whether folks necessarily want to or not and whether that whether those determinations are appropriate in the context of the economic recovery that is taking place in the context of covid um, in the context of um, misalignment in military priorities that uh, did not necessarily put us in the proper situation for what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere, um, I, I think the the real concern with the delay in the president's budget, um, since you know it is often notional, uh, is really the delay in the appropriations process that we are dealing in the context of elections that are coming up elections unfortunately are not conducive to well thought out um uh, uh, appropriations plans in the legislature things tend to get more political the closer we get to november and there is going to be a real political fight over do we do appropriations now uh and reach some kind of agreement um around what the top line numbers are going to be for defense non-defense for example how that's going to be balanced or do the political folks decide to try to kick the can down the road. And what we probably will end up with is continuing resolutions uh, for a couple of years, which would certainly not be conducive to appropriate budgetary or fiscal planning. I think that's something that um, um, most folks would probably anticipate. Anyway, there's there's a lot to dig in here, Um, uh, and it's interesting to watch the appropriations process as it's kicking off in the House right
0: now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask was about like what each of you really look for in the budget. But if I'm correct and and tell me if I'm not, Mark and Bill, for you guys it's a lot more of that kind of what are the underlying assumptions of the budget? How are we planning offsets? You know, where are we looking at the debt and the deficit? And from Dan, it seems like it's much more about where what are agencies prioritizing? What are they asking for? What is the president's policy priorities that he's spelling out? Um, and I think that's very interesting because I think that that kind of reflects a lot of you know what people are thinking in this town in terms of the differing things that they're looking for in a president's budget.
3: You know, e- even though um, it's rare that most of the budget gets enacted, the mandatory and revenue proposals are actually extremely important for understanding the president's vision. on ordinary times, remember most of the budget is not the appropriations process most of the budget is social security medicare other mandatory spending and tax expenditure spending through the tax code Um, one problem with this budget is the the core of the president's agenda is actually missing from it um in, in order to kind of smooth the negotiations process on build back better or whatever remains of that they removed anything related to build back better any spending that was in the house version any revenue related to it from the budget altogether and so we don't really have a good picture of even the president's own priorities, because they're they're sort of on a side shelf.
2: Dan and I may have similar, uh, Dan. You'd be surprised. You and I may have similar priorities in terms of what uh, where the federal government should be expending its resources. Uh, I I will not disagree with you there. Uh, my issue is longer term, and that is uh, as we go out in the future. As uh, as Mark has indicated, the majority of this budget, three quarters of it, for all practical purposes. Is on automatic pilot. And unless you deal with those programs, uh, which are sensitive programs, whether it be Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid, or whether you're going to pay for them in the way of taxes, uh, you're going to accumulate this debt and deficit that I worry about. And why do I worry about it? Because not so much that uh, we can't live with deficits right now, uh, but the accumulation of these deficits over time is accumulated to the point that we're up to a well over 100% of GDP at the end of this time frame. And what it is, is a tax on future generations. I may not be around, but my children and my grandchildren are going to have to suffer the consequences of a debt load that's either gonna have to be paid for with taxes, or it's gonna have to be paid for with a reduction in those benefits that people want. So that's why I think our current consumption, mandatory programs I consider current consumption, the investments that you wanna make, which I think I agree with you most, should be paid for and that's where this budget falls down
4: and i would just you know and like i said before like you know in particular bill i just tremendously respect his experience in 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 decades of service inside and outside of government when when i look at sorry a lot of what i think here probably down to cliches right governing is about deciding um and um you Do you spend money now to fix a bridge or do you keep the money in your pocket and invest it for something else? Like, I mean, there there are sort of these sets of decisions. I I think probably where all three of us agree, at least I I suspect, is that Congress is not up to the task with its current resources and capabilities to be able to engage in the long-term thinking to make the trade-offs that are necessary. I know that many folks have been working for a long time to strengthen funding for committees, for personal office, for leadership, for CBO, for GAO, for the other entities to help our legislators to be able to understand and to debate and to make decisions about these trade-offs. Uh, when I look at the federal budget, I'm not a budget expert. I'm not going, you know, I may play one on the radio, but I do not pretend to be one. Um, and it is very hard to understand. Well, what's the baseline? What What are we talking about? for the increase in defense spending from this year for last year? Are we using it off of the president's proposal? Are we using it after the enacted? Are we using it based on, like, I mean, there's all of these different numbers that are floating around that makes it very hard to, to figure out what's happening. Do we count spending on veterans, which is related to defense, but it's not defense specifically? Like, what bucket do we put this in? How do we constrain ourselves to try to force ourselves to make political deals? Sequestration was something we had to live with uh, for a decade as a consequence of like that type of political bargain. And I worry very much about our ability to make reasoned decisions, regardless of whether we agree with or disagree with each other on particular points, with our ability to make our political system work in a way that makes some kind of sense. I think Bill said earlier on that, no, it wasn't Bill. It was Mark who said that the, the budget is, um, the, the assumptions underlying it are not nece- are a little bit rosy. I I think I'm probably understating it, but they're they're not fully in accord with the reality that we all see when we look out the window. And I think that's always true for president's budgets, and I always think that's true for appropriations, and I think that's true for mandatory spending as well, that these things are based upon artificial rules that we create to have a process, but that process isn't working in the way that we had hoped. And how we deal with that—I'll stop—how we deal with that is very difficult. And it's almost one of the first things that we need to deal with to be able to have a good conversation about um, long-term planning.
2: So I'll you said you, you said something, Dan, that I I use a phrase a lot over that many over my career, and that is budgeting is governing, and governing is budgeting. I think what you've hit upon is it's not so much the budget; it is governing is not functioning. And uh, I don't know that improvement in governing will create what you want, but we are not governing appropriately, and therefore, we're not budgeting. And the two are clearly related. And that's why I think that uh, uh, it's much bigger than the budget. It's the whole decision-making process that has fallen. People like to say the budget process is broken. I think governing is broken today, and that's why we can't make these hard decisions that have to be made.
3: Part of that, I think, comes down to this breakdown of fiscal responsibility itself. Because even if you don't, it, you know, even if you don't worry about the debt for the debt's sake, um, the the beauty of things like sort of go, moving towards balanced budget, which I don't actually support, um, is that they force choices, they force trade offs, they force us to say this part of Medicare isn't working, we could be paying less, um, and this investment is important and is worth worth raising this tax for. When we lose that budget constraint, we lose any outside force that's that's um in those kinds of necessary choices
0: we do need to stop here for our next break but this has been a really interesting discussion and when we come back we will start it right out right back up um i know at this point we do need to say goodbye to our friend bill but thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to having you back on soon
2: thank you very much pleasure to be with you
0: and Dan and I, Dan, Mark, and I will all continue in just a moment. You're listening to Fed Talk. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of our show with Dan Schumann of Demand Progress and Mark Goldwine from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We have just been talking about some of the breakdowns in governance that have been exacerbated or have caused issues with the budgeting and appropriations process. And Dan, if you could just keep, you know, pick the mantle right back up and talk to us a little bit about that process and the current state of it.
4: So the process itself kicks off after the president's budget is received, at least in earnest. Um, And, you know, what you usually have is the House will go first with trying to engage through the appropriations process where the the subcommittees will have a bunch of hearings, and people will submit requests for what they want, and the agencies will have submitted their own budget justifications. Uh, and then the House will uh, mark up legislation the subcommittee and the full committee probably by you know June or so. Uh, and then the Senate does the same, largely in parallel, but starting a little bit later. Uh, at least that's the theory about the way that it's supposed to work. Um, what we're actually having see seeing happen is that, um, the process from the prior fiscal year is running into the current fiscal year that the delays in um you know reaching a negotiated agreement over what the top line budget levels are going to be and all that sort of flows from that impedes the process it either goes forward but without those numbers then you have to go back and kind of reconcile it um uh or uh you know you 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 basically get stuck and a lot of the getting stuck is about the politics of the circumstances so who gets a win and who gets a loss. It's about what are those priorities that Bill was talking about before he had to depart um, and and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, and at, one thing that's notable, so you know, for a long time, there wasn't really a budget process in the federal government that's really an artifact of, of the last century. Um, and in the budget process that we have, it presumes certain types of rational behavior among the players within the political system. And there have always been veto points and there've always been like efforts to push things back, such as like the use of the filibuster in the Senate that can have um, you know, that can that can delay the process. But usually there's been the ability to get enough people behind and around sort of what the appropriations bills should be individually, uh, or put into these little packages. But that's breaking down. Even in right now, like where we have Democrats controlling the House in actuality, Democrats controlling the Senate, at least in theory in a Democrat in the White House, um, you don't really see the Democratic Party able to effectuate the vast majority of the policy choices the majority of Democrats would want to make. And that's with the chambers in the White House aligned. What happens when it's not? You know, how how rational are the actors? What are their goals? Are they focused around making the appropriations process work? Doubtful. Are they focused around elections, more likely? Are they focused around playing to uh, their political bases or, or 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 dealing with sort of uh, more extreme issues? Well, it seems that that is something that is increasing. I mean, we do see asymmetric polarization. We see the ongoing problems, particularly within aspects of the Republican Party. Um, and that suggests, difficulty in the ability to govern, particularly where blame is not meted out based upon the desire or the ability of people to block what's happening. So long as this is a political system, and it has to be a political system, um, when the actors' incentives are no longer aligned towards governance, which has increasingly happened, um, everything doesn't work well. And that means appropriations doesn't work well, budgeting doesn't work well, legislating doesn't work well. We do see increasing incentives for leadership that have aggregated more and more power in their hands to decrease the number of bills that move their way through congress and to make them these huge bills so right the appropriations bill you don't pass the 12 subcommittee bills you pass one or two or three sort of big monster bills you do the same thing with the ndaa with the national defense authorization act and a lot of the other stuff sort of falls by the wayside Um, And I wonder whether these workarounds that are workarounds for other workarounds are going to continue to hold. Um, I think that a process that was designed, you know, largely when you had unitary control of the Congress will continue to work when, you know, uh, the parties or certainly at least one party has become so divorced from the circumstances that led to the creation of this process in the first place. So I would love to not see these continuing resolutions and these delays across, it's bad for everyone, right? It's bad for the agencies, it's bad for the recipients, it's bad for Congress, um, but we seem to be stuck and it's unclear whether we can get ourselves unstuck. So, you know, my crystal ball is murky and covered in mud, but I suspect that we're going to see ongoing dysfunction with things getting worse and worse and the inability to help people who really need it Um, because the political incentives of a few and the power that they have is enough to block a rational policy-making process from being able to go forward. And it makes me sad to say that, Um, but I think that's what it looks like.
3: So the appropriations process has never, has actually never really worked as intended. I believe since um, 1977, the modern process, I believe we had one year that everybody met their deadline all 12 were, you know all the bills were passed everything went on. there's always been delays there's always been um other kind of casts but historically it's generally worked okay even though it hasn't worked perfectly and that's for a couple of reasons one is that people adhered to the overall budget process so they put the budget resolution forward um sometimes that in, in a few cases that was bipartisan budget resolution in most cases it was um, as you said a bipartisan budget resolution and then they used that budget resolution to do the appropriations. Um, and and things kind of worked smoothly because everybody knew what the rules of the road were. Um, the, we also had, I, you know, there's this old saying that I don't really think applies anymore, but there's this saying, there's Republicans, there's Democrats, and there's appropriators, like they're a different party. In the Senate, we're basically down to our last two appropriators, right? Senator, Senator Leahy and Senator Shelby, who are both retiring after this year, are kind of the last of that old breed of, of appropriators or, or or close to it. So I'm actually optimistic we can get one final appropriations bill this year because I think it's going to be their last hurrah. But I worry after that because um, the norms and structures both around the, the budget process and around what members think of as their individual responsibilities has really changed.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and yeah. you know, it, I think that it, it will probably be possible to find 10 Republicans in the Senate who are willing to go along with um Probably a bill that will more reflect their priorities than democratic priorities because they have veto power, you know, because the Democrats incentive is to govern and you'll probably get a handful of Republicans, a dozen or so who are willing to do so as well, Um, I hope, but at, 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 at the at the cost of enshrining significant Republican priorities like, you know, defense spending in a way that doesn't make sense and a bunch of other things that said. I agree. Like, I think this may very well be the last hurrah for this particular process, um, and I worry greatly about it. What happens? You know, does the government shut down? Do you only fund some appropriations and and do CRs for the other subcommittees? Like, it's it's difficult to predict what's coming from here, but none of it looks good, uh, and, and that doesn't mean you know. I win and you lose, or vice versa, right? But it, but it means something else uh, for the ability of us to do one of the few things that we have to do, which is to pass these spending bills. Um, and it's you know it's 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 really concerning.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate this conversation because I think it's something that most federal employees on the ground really feel, um, but they you know perhaps don't have the insight onto this kind of overarching issue as you guys have discussed it. It is shocking, as Mark mentioned, that since the birth of the modern appropriations process, it's only actually been done properly on time as expected once, maybe twice. Um, and, and that's really significant. And it seemed like when we had the 35-day very historic government shutdown that there was a recognition in the problem with these shutdowns. You know, there was a lot of mobilization supporting federal employees who were furloughed during that time. And a lot of lawmakers rushed to introduce legislation on halting government shutdowns and ending those. But it seems like instead what has happened, rather than fixing the appropriations process, fixing the budgeting process, we've instead just moved into these CR states. And it almost makes me wonder how long we're just going to do CRs until you forget about how bad the shutdown was, and we let it happen again
4: and I, and i think getting to the crs is a, is like we will view that as being good right i think there may be a point where we don't get to that right and it's and it's you know it's it, a measure of the desperation i think is the proposals that have been put forward to address uh, these these uh, euphemistically called interregnums or gaps in federal spending right like you know there's we're gonna stop paying members of Congress. Well, actually you can't, right? The constitution prohibits that. You can't change the pay for a member of Congress in the term, uh, which they are currently in Congress. That was the last constitutional amendment and not a particularly good one, but like, you know, there you are. So like, you can't deal with that. I think that when you see these failures, people get angry at government, they get angry at Congress. and, And they're like, these people are terrible. We should cut their pay. We should treat them badly because, you know, if you go to a, a your doctor and you're like, I'm going to pay you 30% less because I'm unhappy with the surgery you did last time around, you're going to get a better result. Like like that That's that type of reasoning doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's the, you know, people are like, oh, nothing works. We should just sort of tear it down, which is also sort of the uh, the wrong approach. Uh, we've seen the return of earmarks. Uh, some people really love earmarks. Some people really don't love earmarks. I don't think earmarks actually really went away. Uh, We just say that they went away now that they're back in a slightly, you know, in the way that they had been before, but there was always the ability to direct spending for particular things. But putting that aside, um, people are trying to use that as a mechanism to have people have skin in the game. And I think it's unclear at this point whether the return of earmarks will ultimately facilitate an appropriations process or not. We saw members who pro who opposed the appropriations bill get some of their earmarks in, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, but you know, we'll see whether that that continues sort of in that way. Um, you know, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to put our heads together and think of something else. But like, I think this is actually goes to to what Mark said and to what Bill said, which is that uh, the budgeting and governing are interconnected, and that this is, in my view, about The fundamental problems in our political process and the inability to reconcile the fundamental differences that we have about whether or what kind of democracy we want. And that is bleeding over into the appropriations process and the budgeting process is one of the most obvious places that we're going to have these problems.
0: Mark, you previously mentioned how some of these really big policy priorities for President Biden and the Democrats like Build Back Better Was missing from the budget. Um, And I think that there are a lot of political undertones for that, you know, because it it has been so contentious. Uh, But there are also practical issues, as you mentioned, for the budget because of that. And as we move into our last segment, I want to pivot the discussion back to looking at the President Biden's budget and some of the things that were the biggest signals, the biggest takeaways. And Mark, can you just for a moment talk about that Build Back Better being missing and the significance of that um, a little bit more?
3: Sure. So, look, the budget itself proposes about two and a half trillion dollars of new taxes paid for to pay for one and a half trillion of new spending. But it doesn't include any of the taxes passed in the House Build Back Better bill, even though the administration supports them. And it doesn't include any of the spending in the Build Back Better bill, even though the president supports them. So it looks like one and a half trillion of spending may actually be three and a half trillion of spending the President supports. We don't know because their priorities aren't in the budget. Um, And ironically, many of the tax policies that are in the budget are ones that were already rejected from the Build Back Better process. So they're the ones that we know for sure are not going to happen. In other cases, there are new creative ideas. So I don't want to overstate that. But in many ways, the, the policies that are most important and most likely to happen are missing from the budget and the policies that are less likely to happen and less important to the president are, are in there. And that makes it a little bit backwards as, a, as even a political document.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it highlights that disconnect between the kind of governing process and the budgeting process in its current form. We do need to stop here for our final break. But when we return, we'll wrap up this discussion about the president's proposed budget. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network.
1: Welcome
0: back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show on the proposed budget and the appropriations process. Let's dive right in. So, we were just talking about some of the big things from the Biden budget that were maybe missing, um, kind of some of the signals that the Biden administration is sending. And I want to take a minute to ask Dan and Mark about what are some of the standout items that you think Congress should really consider in this next appropriation cycle, or some of the things that you're really interested in seeing included?
4: So, for, for my part, you know, I'm looking at the breakdown for spending for defense versus non-defense. I think one of the big open and interesting questions is what to do about the ever-increasing um, uh, costs for the Veterans Administration for the for the medical costs, how that's going to be classified. Uh, you know, if that's kept as part of the non-defense side, it's basically going to eat alive the rest of the the, the non-defense discretionary spending. Um, I think that I'm looking for how you how do you deal with the continued consequences of COVID and uh, the different nature of the economic recovery and with the way the supply chain is moving. I'm very interested in how the military is going to deal with a circumstance that I did not expect in Ukraine uh and what that means for um uh both its analytical capabilities and and also from from a deployment perspective and i think the final thing that i'm looking for and this is probably the thing that nobody else cares about um it's the level of spending for the legislative branch it is the smallest of the 12 appropriations bills it's 5.9 billion dollars it's like one half of one percent of overall federal spending but the ability to have decently paid congressional employees and nonpartisan experts to help Congress work through all of its political issues is essential. And we have seen a you know, series of significant cuts to the legislative branch. Are we going to make it capable of doing its job at equivalent pay and resource levels to elements inside the executive branch? Or are we going to continue to disinvest in the legislative branch with the, the consequences that we aren't able to govern ourselves? So that's So that's what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah. And I will just, you know, echo on the legislative branch. It's, it's so much of what we've been talking about this whole show about Congress's ability to govern. And of course, there is a political voice in that, but there's also a very practical voice about the capacity for congressional staff to be able to enact legislation that is, you know, comprehensive and meaningful and um, and it is really based in expertise. And I think a lot of the conversations we've been seeing lately about congressional staff unionization and and these other things are so important because it sh- it, it it reflects a. Uh, disheartening uh, in within the congressional staffers about the current state of their workplace, um, and they requires investment in order to really turn the tide on that. So I'm not surprised that that's something we're hearing about more, and that hopefully legislative branch appropriations will meaningfully address. Mark, what about you?
3: Uh, so as I mentioned before, the appropriations is only a small share of the budget, and I'm actually more interested in what's happening to the rest, and in particular how, if at all, uh, Congress is going to use their reconciliation instruction. We know Build Back Better is passed in the House is dead, um, but I, I think that the administration has at least rhetorically made an appropriate pivot to making Build Back Better about helping to get inflation under control, helping to get health care costs down, um, and reducing long-term deficits. And so I'm interested to see if we can advance some drug pricing legislation, um, some reforms to the tax code, especially... Uh, funding the IRS appropriately so that we can actually close that tax gap and improve compliance. Um, And where we want to invest some of that money, I'd like a lot of it to go to deficit reduction, but certainly, um, you know, we have a lot of needs around the climate and some, um, some other, other needs. And so I'm just very curious how that all plays out. And I'm hopeful that we can get some of those revenue and health savings back on the table.
0: Mark, were there specific places within the budget where you saw that spending was being cut or spending was being raised that you thought were most significant? You mentioned the IRS. I know the president gave the IRS a pretty significant bump in appropriations. Um, Are there other places where you're you're really seeing important cuts or raises?
3: Uh, Well, unfortunately, as I said before, I think the president's core priorities outside of the appropriations process are not in the budget. They're in the Build Back Better plan. So we do have to look there. Um, we did see a lot in Pell Grants. Um, among the agencies, huge increases in veterans. I actually think um, those are not wise overall because, I, because um, I think we can spend a lot more efficiently on veterans. A lot of these are healthcare costs that we should be um, bringing down along with other costs by reducing our, our payments, et cetera. Um, but the big game here is what do we do about Medicare? Um, and that's that's not really discussed in this in this budget. But it is part of build back better, especially on the drug side.
0: Dan, anything to add there?
4: I think I agree with a lot of that. Uh, I I think the build back better, or at least what was originally in there, reflects a lot of the priorities that we're looking at around uh, climate change, around healthcare, around um, helping students, uh, around dealing with the aftermath of COVID. Uh, I, I think that. Um, you know, like, I think those are the things that, that we're looking at. Um, the, but the president's budget is a giant placeholder for those things. You know, basically Joe Manchin, fill in whatever you want here. Unfortunately, it seems to be what, what's kind of happening there. Um, but that is what I'm watching closely as to whether there will be something of the order that is necessary to, to actually address these problems. I think that, just like with our governance, we're, we're on the verge of too late for a lot of these other things that we need to have addressed, and the unwillingness or inability to do so um, is, is a sign of the overall decline uh, in the governance that we're seeing, which is unfortunately the theme of our show for today.
0: Yes, it is. Um, Which makes me wonder, you know, with you both mentioned how with um, Senator Shelby and Leahy kind of having their last hurrah on appropriations, that there is a hope for the process running a little bit more smoothly. Do you guys have any predictions on what some of the pain points in the process are going to be? You know, we saw in previous years, it was border funding that became what caused a shutdown. Do you have any specific thoughts on where there might be pain points or even opportunities to compromise where Congress would really come together um, and make the process more effective?
4: That's a good question. I mean, so so I I probably have the more cynical view, although I don't want to speak uh, uh, for Mark in terms of cynicism. But um, uh, I, I think that the politics on the right are so erratic in terms of the subject matter, that it is difficult to determine what, you know, crazy Instagram meme around something unusual is going to become, you know, the cause, uh celeb that will, that will derail a process. I mean, it could be, it could be immigrants. Uh, we're, we're seeing talk now about, you know, libraries um, and pulling books out of libraries where there's always education. Um, I mean, we're, this is this is the legacy of a lot of problems in our country that we haven't dealt with. And I think that there's a lot of folks who want to demonstrate that they are the leader on the crazy thing of the week, and that is going to give them an incentive to pull down the process, to grab the spotlight, to say, look at me to the crazy wing. Uh, and that is what's going to derail the process. And, and we are losing most, you know, the remaining senior members who are able to ignore that wing and like to do the stuff that they need to do um and i'm just not convinced that that's going to continue i i mean we've seen that our politicians are afraid to push back on the crazy and um that that creates a veto point so so you know i'd love to see movement on addressing climate change on uh health on education i fear that um things that we can't even anticipate are going to arise as the choke points. So,
3: again, more dystopia. Sorry. (laughs) I mean, look, for better or for worse, the big fight, we don't even have a number, right? So when you have a budget, you then have a number. Then you can fight about the details. There are going to be all these um, little details and riders, and usually they do figure out how to iron them out. And I believe that um, Senators Shelby and Leahy will figure out but they've been figuring out even how much we're going to spend and what the defense-non-defense split is going to be. Uh, my bet is last time it was a little bit more favorable to, non, to non-defense. to non My bet is this one's going to be a little bit more favorable to defense, both because um, Republicans have more leverage, presuming that they win back one house in the election. They, they can afford to wait. Uh, and because I think that there's um, increasing anxiety among Democrats, that the um, among many Democrats, that defense is, not, is too small for our current needs. I don't I don't happen to agree with that I think we're not spending right but but it's president so I, I think the big fights are actually going to be over the over, overall number and the, the breakdown and then they're all going to be these little fights but I think I'm hopeful we can steam over and through them at least this time around
0: well I appreciate the bit of hope there um yeah I recently read a statement that one group pushed out um, following the Biden budget, where they really just kind of frankly said to Congress that it feels like every year we have these weeks long bickering and delays that we could fight over things. And then the end result is actually pretty similar to where the debate started. Um, So there's certainly a frustration felt on that side that a lot of the times these choke points are just whatever becomes the talk of the town at that point. Um, But before we wrap up today's show, I do want, you know, we've talked about this mammoth of a process, how difficult it is, all the things that go into it. For our listeners who want to remain engaged, who want to continue learning about this stuff, tracking its progress, um, and and even discussing what's going on in in their agencies or what they're seeing on the ground, can you guys let us know how our listeners can produce can reach additional resources on this topic.
4: Sure. So um, we one place to start is we have a weekly newsletter called the First Branch Forecast, which is at firstbranchforecast.com. And the value of, of that is that we talk about um, what are the hearings, what are the markups, when is testimony due? Um, what are the numbers that are coming out? We summarize the legislation to the extent that we can. Uh, so we we try to provide links to all the primary resources. Uh, folks should obviously also be looking at uh, USA spending um, for information uh, when when OMB finally starts publishing the congressional budget justifications like they're supposed to. They should be looking at the House and Senate Appropriations website, appropriations.house.gov and the Senate equivalent for hearings and markups that are coming up um, and. Beyond that, uh, staying tuned to
3: resources like this, I suspect, is a good place to, to keep up to date on what's going on. Uh, my two favorite places to look are um, two government agencies, CBO and, and GAO, the Congressional Budget Office and Government Accountability Agency. Their websites aren't always, especially GAO, easy to navigate because there's so much material on them, but it's really interesting. Also, check out crfb.org. Um, we have a lot of analysis on the President's Budget, Appropriations 101. Q&As on how government shutdowns work and everything everything else fiscal policy.
0: Well, that's great. That is all the time we have for our show today. I want to thank Dan, Mark, and Bill for joining me. This was a really informative show, and I highly encourage you guys to check out Bipartisan Policy Center, Demand Progress, and of course, the First Branch Forecast and the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thank you all for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.